Hello, Bridgetown Church, and to all of you watching online, a very happy Easter to you from the Comer family to all of you at home by yourself or with your family or your friends, and a warm welcome to the teaching portion for Bridgetown Online. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you're new to the Library of Scripture, it's the very last book all the way to the right. And let me read over you our text for today. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, down to verse 18. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The philosopher Agnes Callard from the University of Chicago had an op-ed last week entitled, Why Am I Reading Apocalyptic Novels Right Now? It was about the sharp uptick in people reading novels like The Road by Cormac McCarthy or Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel or watching movies like Contagion or Outbreak or The Walking Dead. Critics have coined the new genre pandemic fiction and it's on the rise. Steven Soderbergh's 2011 movie Contagion is in the top 10 on iTunes, which begs the question, why are millions of people streaming a movie about a global pandemic in which millions of people die in the middle of a global pandemic where our greatest fear is death? What is the psychology behind that? Well, one, it is to face our fears. Callard ends her article by writing, we don't want to escape. We want to be here now, even if it hurts. We have an intuition that the best way to fight fear is not to run away from it, but to turn and face it head on. And two, it's to plot our fear onto a story or a narrative to make sense of it, a story with the beginning, life before the pandemic, with a middle life in the middle of the pandemic, the chaos and disruption and fear, and an end in order to imagine coming out the other side in peace. Almost all apocalyptic literature and film is Christological, meaning it has a Christ figure who gives his or her life for the world in self-sacrificial love. And it almost always ends with an Easter-like motif, with a glimmer of a new world on the horizon. 
You see, the reason we read pandemic fiction or watch an apocalyptic movie is not all that different from the reason we pray on Good Friday and sing on Easter Sunday. It is to face our fear and to fuel our hope for a better tomorrow, except that one is based on fantasy and the other is based on reality. It comes as no surprise that there is apocalyptic literature in the library of scripture, replete with plagues and pestilence and famine and all of it. And the best example by far is Revelation. Now, the opening title of the book in verse one is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, or in Greek, it's Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. Let's break that down. First, the revelation, or in Greek, it's Apocalypsis, where we get the English word apocalypse. But in the first century, apocalypse had a very different meaning. It meant to reveal, hence the name revelation. One lexicon defines it as to make known a divine revelation. It was used in classical Greek for the opening of a closed door or the pulling back of a curtain. It's when something that was behind a curtain, hidden from view, is brought out into the open. For that reason, if you said to a first century Greco-Roman, an apocalypse is coming, they would say, that's great news. When is it? I can't wait. But second, notice it's not revelations, though there are many revelations in the book, and it's not just revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, or in the NIV, from Jesus Christ. The Greek there can be translated either from Jesus or about Jesus. Which one is right? Well, both. It's a revelation that comes from Jesus himself, and it's all about Jesus. People err in reading Revelation when they think it is about anything other than Jesus. When they think it's about the end times or the secret identity of the Antichrist or a numerical code language for current events. Whatever interpretation of Revelation is right, some people think it's all about the future, others it's all about the past, others it's more of an allegory for all time. Just set that aside for a moment. It is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's easy to misread that because it belongs to a genre of literature that's unique to Jewish writing from around the time of Christ and that we literally have zero parallel for in modern literature. Scholars call it apocalyptic. It's an ancient genre that is full of symbolism and numerology and code language and visions of heaven and hell and angels and demons and all of it. Now, why would John, the author, write a letter, that's what Revelation is, it's a letter to seven churches, in the genre of apocalyptic. I don't know about you, but when I fire off an email to a pastor buddy of mine, I don't write it in code language or in an allegory. Well, two reasons. The first is pragmatic and the other is pastoral. First, the pragmatic. John is in a Roman prison on the island of Patmos, and it was likely to sneak the letter past the censorship of his Roman guards, who would not understand it and most likely would assume it was just the ramblings of a senile old man who'd been out in the sun too long, rather than the work of literary genius that it is. Allegory has long played this role. I recently read Animal Farm by George Orwell, who, you know, that's his allegory, his kind of critique of communist Russia and the Russian Revolution. And he wrote it in allegory because that was the best way to sneak it over the Iron Curtain. But the other reason is pastoral. Daryl Johnson from Regent Seminary in his excellent work that inspired a ton of today's teaching, writes that apocalyptic literature has two pastoral purposes. Number one, it's to set the present moment 
and all of its uncertainty and anxiety in light of the unseen realities of the future. If this life is all there is, if the secular narrative is true, there's no more to you than the material, than just your body, and we're just an animal with time and chance on our side, the byproduct of evolutionary chance. If there's no meaning or purpose to life other than what we make of it, it's just survival and pleasure along the way. And if we die, it's all over, fade to black. If that's the real true story of the world, then you will see something like COVID-19 in a very specific way. But if we're not just an animal, if there's more than just the material, if we're a soul, if we were made by a creator and we live in a creation and there's a story and a narrative arc to human history and God is not distant, but he's here and he's involved and you're the object of his love and death is not the end. It is just the beginning, a portal to a whole new reality. Well, that is a very different way to think about something like COVID-19. What you believe about the future will shape how you live in the present. So first, it's to set the present moment and all of its uncertainty and anxiety in light of the unseen realities of the future. But second, it's to set the present moment, this is again Johnson channeling him here, in all of its uncertainty and anxiety in light of the unseen realities of the present. We now know from quantum physics what spirituality has long said, that there is far more to reality than what we can discern or deduce with our five senses or even with a microscope in a lab. They say something like 60 or 70% of the universe is dark energy, another 20 or 30% is dark matter, and a meager 5% is what we can measure with scientific instruments. The universe is full of mystery. The point of apocalyptic literature in the Bible is to pull back the curtain of the universe and reveal what's really going on. Things are not always as they seem. In particular, it's to reveal God and his presence and his work and activity and love. New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, another expert on Revelation, writes, quote, John, and thereby his readers with him, you and me, is taken up into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. The effect of John's visions is to expand his reader's world, to open their world to divine transcendence. It is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape to heaven, but that the here and now look quite different when they are opened to transcendence. There is so much to reality that our secular world is missing. And the main thing, the number one, quote, kind of unseen reality is a person. It is Jesus Christ. Now, let's work through the text kind of line by line. Verse 9, again. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus— was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God or the message about Jesus and the testimony of Jesus or the gospel. Okay, a little backstory here. Revelation was most likely written in the mid-90s of the first century when the church all across the Mediterranean was facing a wave of very intense persecution from the Roman Empire in what historians now call the Reign of Terror. Domitian became emperor in the 80s, and he was a very insecure man. He demanded that all Romans worship him as Dominus et Deus in Latin, or Lord and God. To do that, you had to go by Roman law once a year to an imperial temple, 
throw incense on the altar and say, Caesar Kyrios, or Caesar is Lord. It was called the little act of worship. Now, for most Romans in a pagan or polytheistic culture, that was a no-brainer, easy, whether you believe or not, doesn't really matter, just go do your thing for the government. But for followers of Jesus, whose central view of reality, who the creed of the early church in the New Testament was Yesu Kyrios, or Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the reality of which Caesar is the parody. That was a deal breaker. They refused to worship Caesar, and in doing so became enemies of the state, as religion was the glue that held the empire together, as it does in all empires, whether that religion is secular or spiritual. Tens of thousands of followers of Jesus were killed every single year under Domitian. But John, likely because of his high profile as a disciple of Jesus, was not killed because that would turn him into a martyr. Instead, he was sent into exile on Patmos, small rocky island out in the Aegean Sea, about 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. In his day, it was a Roman penal colony and a rock quarry where enemies of the state were literally worked to death. Hence why John calls himself your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Man, do we need a little patient endurance right now. He's saying to those who are facing persecution and uncertainty and fear and threat of death, I know that we're apart right now. I know that we're not together, but I am with you in our season of suffering. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. There are seasons in life that just call, we're very aware of it right now, that call for suffering and kingdom and patient endurance in Jesus. And we need to hear that we're not alone, that we are together as a church in Jesus. But John goes on, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. John is all alone on the Lord's day, which is a way of saying the Christian Sabbath or Sunday. And he's not watching Netflix or sleeping in or on a break from church. He's in the spirit. Then I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to announce the presence of God. And a voice behind him, presence of God, said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Revelation is designed to be read as a circular letter. You would receive it and then read it as a church in Ephesus, make a copy or three, and then pass it on to the next church. But here's the thing. There are more than seven churches in Asia Minor, what the region was called. So why the number seven? Well, in biblical numerology, which is a key part of Revelation, seven is the number of completion. It's a literary way of saying this letter is for the seven flesh and blood churches in first century Asia Minor, but it's also for the church all over the world and down through history. It's for Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon in 2020, millennia later, and for all of you wherever you are watching from. Look at verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like, kind of like a son of man. Now, golden lampstands are imagery from the temple in Jerusalem, where right outside the Holy of Holies, which was the locus point of God's presence, were the seven golden lampstands or the menorah. It's a way of saying that John is in the presence of God on Patmos that his solitude is God's sanctuary. What a good reminder 
that the Patmos of your studio apartment or your condo or your home, where you are either in solitude and feeling it and kind of lonely in your spirit or cooped up with your spouse or children or roommate 24-7, either way you feel like you're in prison, that is God's sanctuary. Even if you can't gather with your church or your community like John, God is there with you today, with me. And notice that Jesus is, quote, among the golden lampstands. Now, at the end of the chapter, the lampstands are identified in the symbolism as the seven churches, meaning it's another way of saying Jesus is with you if you're all alone like John on your Patmos, and he is with the church, the church that in his time was facing persecution and threat of death. He's with the church today in Bridgetown and in Portland and all over the world in the middle of COVID-19, in the financial fallout from a global pandemic, in the uncertainty over the future. He is with us. Brothers and sisters, Bridgetown Church family, wherever you are right now, whatever you are up against, you are not alone. We are together in spirit, if not in the flesh. And above all, Jesus is with you and he's with us and he is at work. And listen to John's vision of Jesus. It's just stunning. 13, he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, referring to the robe worn by the high priest at the temple which had been destroyed 20 years before, but Jesus is still alive. And with a golden sash around his chest, which is what you would wear in the ancient world to work. It's John's way of saying that Jesus is, in the language of the New Testament, the great high priest, that he has done the work through his death and resurrection. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it's done. And still he is there, sashed there, ready to work at work in the world. The hair on his head was like white, was white like wool, as white as snow. That's imagery from the book of Daniel, where it is used for the Ancient of Days, or God. It's a way of saying that God, or in this case, Jesus, is very old. He's been around and seen it all, the rise and fall of Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Alexander the Great and Greece and Julius Caesar and Rome and all of the empires. He's seen them come. He's seen them go. He's still here, ancient as ever and wise. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. Fire was a symbol in the ancient world from metallurgy for the refining of a precious metal like gold or silver. Jesus' eyes are refining to our soul. He's burning us clean as he is clean. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, referring again to the book of Daniel and his vision, if you know that story, of a statue that's symbolic for the empire that has feet made out of a mix of iron and clay, which was a way of saying that all empires are built on a shaky foundation. Jesus' feet, on the other hand, are bronze, strong, steady, built to last forever. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Think of the ocean or think of the sound of a waterfall so loud that it drowns out all of the other voices in your ear. Say what, right? And at the same time, calming. That's what Jesus' voice is like. It's like Aslan's roar and it's a gentle whisper. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Astrology was serious business in the ancient world. It was not a joke or a, you know, a game you play on the side. And astronomers of the day thought there were seven planets in the cosmos and that the world was under the control of the seven planets. But here, Jesus is holding the seven stars or planets 
in one hand. It's a way of saying the planets do not run the universe. I do. I got you right where you're at. I got you. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus' voice, it's like a sword. His truth cuts through all the lies, piercing bone from marrow. And finally, his face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. It's been a gorgeous week in our city, and we're well acquainted now, finally, with the sun. Think of the sun the last few days, bright, warm, life-giving, all-powerful, and shining on John in the story, or you and me here today in loving joy. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, just stay with me for a few more minutes. There is something in the text that we miss. It's really easy to miss if you're a late modern Western reader like myself. Let me nerd out on you for just a little while longer. A scholar I read in my research called Revelation, a literary work composed with astonishing care and skill. Case in point, John's vision of Jesus is written using a literary technique called a chiasm from the Greek letter chi, which looks like the English letter X. A chiasm is a literary device that's shaped like the left side of an X or like a sideways V. If you were to sentence diagram it out, it's one, two, three, four, three, two, one. Now, Western thinking is, and writing, is linear. Think of a term paper for school. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right? Remember high school or college, point one, point two, point three. And the, most important, and the most important point is either at the beginning or at the end. But ancient Near Eastern culture and Middle Eastern culture today is chiastic. The main point, nine times out of ten, is in the middle. If you read John's vision of Jesus in a linear way, kind of top to bottom, it doesn't make sense. It sounds like John is all over the place and he's spasmodic. But that's because it's a chiasm. Let's kind of sentence diagram it out. One, head. Two, eyes. Three, feet. Four, voice. Three, hand. Two, mouth. One, face. It's pretty easy to see how the chiasm goes together. One and one go together, head and face. That's pretty easy. Same with two and two, or eyes and mouth. What Eugene Peterson and his work on Revelation 1 calls the organs of relationship. Same with three and three, or feet and hands, which express capability. It's a way of saying Jesus has capability in the world. But the chiasm is all pointing to number four, the voice, like the sound of rushing waters. Daryl Johnson's insight here is that it's John's literary way of saying the most basic posture of a disciple of Jesus is listening to his voice. Let me say that again. The most basic posture of a disciple of Jesus is listening to his voice. In the next two chapters, all seven letters end with Jesus saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 32 times in the book as a whole, John writes, I heard, or I heard a voice. He is saying over and over again that the fundamental posture of a disciple of Jesus is just to sit at his feet and listen. And what does the voice say? Verse 17, then he placed his right hand on me, just a sign of comfort, how we all miss that warmth and touch, right? 
And he said, quote, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Can you think of a better text for Easter? The heart behind Easter is that Jesus is not just an idea or a feeling or religion or even a historical figure or an explanation for why there is something and not nothing in the universe. He is the living one. And that even in our fear of death itself, he is alive and he is with us and his voice is still speaking in the spirit. Now note, there are two commands from the voice of Jesus in verse 17 and 18. The first is do not be afraid. He's not talking about the fear from the body that God made you in, as in kind of the jolt you get from your nervous system when you're typing on your iPhone or whatever and you walk out into traffic. He's talking about fear in the psychological sense. Psychologists define fear as the anticipation of future suffering, but a more Christian definition is the anticipation of future suffering without Jesus involved in it. Listen to Jesus' rationale for why we do not need to be afraid. It's not, hey, because nothing bad will happen to you. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus made you a promise. He said, in this world, you will face tribulation. Life will be hard. He gave us ample warning of wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence. That's not the promise. His rationale is, listen, I was dead and now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, that's a word picture. The imagery is of Jesus on the cross. It's like he let evil the Roman Empire and the Satan and human rebellion and angst do its worst to his body and soul, literally drag him down into prison in hell. But God the Father broke him out of jail and on the way out, he stole the keys to the prison. That's the word picture. It's Jesus' way of saying, I hold the keys to what you most fear. Daryl Johnson again writes this, Jesus Christ has stolen the chief weapon that evil uses to enforce its rule. Jesus has stolen the weapon of fear. Fear is a powerful force. Fear can keep us from doing what is right, and it can make us do what we know is wrong. All fear is firmly rooted in the fear of death, the fear of criticism, the fear of rejection, the fear of financial loss, the fear of pain. They are all at rock bottom, the fear of death. Evolutionary psychologists call this the survival instinct. The surface level fear is we're scared of losing our job or our business or not having enough money to pay rent in May or not being able to see our family or friends or grandma or grandpa for months at a time or somebody dying behind a hospital door. But the base fear is death itself. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of Easter, We do not need to fear, not even death itself, because death is no longer the end. Because of Easter, one day what happened to Jesus will happen to all of Jesus' followers. Death followed by burial, followed by resurrection. 
Jesus' resurrection is the advanced sign. It's, it dragged the future of humanity into the present in his body. And then he gave us his spirit so that while we wait for that future, we can function not in fear, but as agents of peace and love and joy in a world of all of the opposite. Last week, uh, T and I were grocery shopping. We split up at one point, but she went to Trader Joe's. And I love that checkers have now become like the new heroes, like doctors and checkers. Like we pray for you, we love you, you are the heroes of our era. And the checker there, she knows and he's a believer and goes to another great church in town. And she just said, my wife's really warm if you know her. She said, how are you holding up? Like it's crazy, like you're on the front lines. And he said kind of out of whisper, he was scared for people to hear, I'm doing great. And then he said, all of my Christian friends and all of the Christians I know who come in here are totally at peace, but pretty much everybody else is freaking out. Now, if you're a believer and you're freaking out, don't feel bad. That's not to shame you at all. But I thought about it for a moment. I'm like, yeah, like I think I'm the most stressed out Christian I know right now. I run into all of you from church, not all of you, but a number of you from church on my like daily runs. And I keep running into you and waiting for somebody to break down in tears. And all I get is like smiles for the most part. I know it's not that way for all of you at all. And we're with you, but th there really is a lot of peace for a believer. And if you're not a believer, he, he wasn't saying that followers of Jesus are more courageous or better than our secular neighbors, not at all. It's just that for us, death is very sad. Grief and lament are core to our tradition, but it is not the end. And people who are not afraid to die are set free to live. The sociologist Rodney Stark in his groundbreaking book, The Rise of Christianity, which is an academic attempt to explain how the church went from a few people hiding behind locked doors on the first Easter to a global, historic, cross-cultural movement that swept away the Roman Empire and paganism in just a few centuries and is still around thousands of years later. In his analysis, the number one factor, at least for the first few centuries, the number one most compelling thing that made the gospel of Jesus spread was that followers of Jesus were not afraid to die. He writes about two examples. One, martyrdom. They would die rather than just burn incense and say Caesar is Lord once a year. And two, he writes about how a number of plagues hit the empire in the first few centuries and how the rich, the politicians, doctors would all abandon the city and in particular the poor. And it was the church. It was the followers of Jesus who would stay, stay in the city, care for the poor, tend to the vulnerable. Many of them would die, would, would get the disease and die, but they were not scared of death. They were people of love in a world of fear. And that was beyond compelling. Most psychologists, you know, break emotion down into categories. You have the five survival emotions of fear, rage, disgust, shame, and sadness, and the attachment emotions of trust and joy. But it's more art than science. And other psychologists argue there are just two basic emotions, fear and love. And they are incompatible. They pull in opposite directions. It's interesting, do not fear. I keep saying this the last month. Do not fear is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. And Jesus, in his teaching, said that the greatest or the most important command in all of Scripture is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Or as my therapist once said to me, when fear is running the show, love is repressed. We were talking about parenting. And when I get scared for the future of my child uh, based on a behavior or whatever, then I start to domineer or manipulate or react and control or attempt to control. That's not love. The writer John, in an earlier work in the New Testament, makes the link explicit, quote, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. Fear drives us away from people and into ourself in self-preservation. Love drives us out of ourselves toward other people in self-giving. Who is running the show in the cockpit of your spirit right now on Easter 2020? Is it fear or is it love? If it's fear, you're not alone. Don't feel bad again, no shame. You and I need the second command. Number two is to look. That's it. Look, exclamation point in the NIV translation. Look at me, Jesus is saying. I'm not dead, I was. I'm here, I'm alive, I'm with you. Patmos is the temple, it's the holy of holies. My presence is all around you. Fix your attention on me. Direct the inner gaze of your heart onto me. Don't look at Rome or the threat of the secret police at your door or death itself. Just look at me. There are so many things that we can look at right now that we can give our attention and our time over to, that we can allow to take over our mind stream or the flow of thoughts through our mind and, and carve new neural pathways to shape who we become as a person. For the disciple of Jesus, the primary object of our thought life is the crucified and risen Jesus Christ himself. And the command to look at Jesus, it's not a command to start doing something new. It's a command to change something you're already doing. Meaning you and I, we're already looking. We're already thinking. We have a prefrontal cortex. We're human beings. We can't not think. The question is, what are we thinking about? What are we looking at? Our phone or tablet? The steady flow of clickbaity news from a fear-mongering kind of capitalistic media? The stock market? The empty promises of self-help? The distraction of the Tiger King? Social media scrolling? or the crucified and risen Jesus. And the two commands, do not be afraid and look, go together. We can only obey the first if and when we obey the second. Put another way, we stop being afraid when we start looking at Jesus. When we adopt a posture of listening to and looking at Jesus, our fear just dissipates into thin air, and we have the potential at that point to become, to grow and mature year over year into people of love and joy and peace in our city and our world. My guess is that I'm not alone in that the last month has been one of the most trying of my life. I'm well, our family is thriving right now and healthy, but we are really feeling the weight of so many of you that have lost work or income or your business is up in the air or you are sick with the disease. We have a few people in our church, all of whom right now are okay, but who are down, who are sick. I'm just feeling that weight, the uncertainty of the future, the uncertainty of the future of our own church. Man, I'm just feeling that. And when I look at the news every day, I feel like Zoom and the news are gonna become trigger words for me by the time this is all over. 
But when I look at the news or when I start to think or read an op-ed about kind of hypothetical worst-case scenarios over the next year or two or the stats or the data, I get really afraid. Like my personality, I wish I was beyond anxiety, but I'm actually kind of bent toward it. Jesus is doing a deep work of healing in me. But when I stop and I breathe, I get up early in the morning and I sit in my living room when the house is still quiet and I just look at Jesus, just fix that inner attention of my heart and I see, so to speak, Jesus, not just the idea of Jesus, the historical figure of Jesus, but the risen Jesus, the risen and crucified Jesus who was with me in every room I walk into, in my own body. And I look at him and I see him looking back at me in love. And I hear him saying what he's always been saying. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. I can't think of a more important thing to do this Easter than adopt a posture of listening to and looking at the crucified and risen Jesus. To end, um, this is Bridgetown Church's first pandemic. So thank you for your patience with our leaders. But the Church of Jesus has been through many pandemics and almost always has come out on the other side far stronger than before. God is doing such a deep work in our church, in my spirit, and I'm guessing in you. This is a historic Easter. It's likely the first Easter in 2,000 years in which most church buildings all across the world have been empty. But the reason that we're not all together in our beautiful new building, and I can't wait for you to see it, it's just about done, and the reason that we're at home instead and we're wearing pajamas instead of pastel, unless if you're wearing pajamas and pastel, well done. It's not because of fear. It's because of love. This is the most loving way to love our, kind of take care of our city right now. And it's because of faith. We have faith that Jesus is alive, that he is in my life when I'm alone and in yours, that he is in the middle of our church, that he will hold our church together through an apocalyptic time, that even when our building is empty and we're all alone and I'm preaching to a red light in an empty basement, that Jesus is alive and with me. That even when you're watching this alone on your couch or in your bedroom, Jesus is alive and with you. That even when we are apart as a church, we are together in Jesus. So Bridgetown Church, do not be afraid. Instead, look. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As you know, we are nearing completion on our building renovation project right here in the inner east side of Portland. And we hope to move in as soon as possible, um, depending on what happens with this whole coronavirus shutdown. But without having Sundays um, gatherings, we're a little bit vulnerable financially. So for those of you who are part of Bridgetown, thank you for your continued giving. And if you're not part of Bridgetown, would you consider giving above and beyond what you already do to your local church? We would love any kind of partnership towards completing this building project. You can find out more for that or give online at our website, bridgetown.church slash giving.